0: everybody out there in podcast land this is chris the public safety guru bringing you another lecture in the series two nremt emt lecture prep series today we will be talking about the medical overview and when you get done with this podcast you the emt student or nremt prepper should be able to understand the need for proper assessment techniques when called to those patients that have a chief complaint of a medical nature. But before that, don't forget to follow us on Instagram at The EMT Tutor or head on over to our webpage, thepublicsafetyguru.com for up-to-date information about everything EMT. We also have exclusive content for those that want to become podcast members or join our Patreon channel, which can be found by searching for The EMT Tutor. There you can find exclusive member-only podcasts, study guides, and tests on to your learning as with all of our lectures we will identify what the emt needs to know after this lecture series which we call knowledge domains all right the emt should be able to differentiate between medical emergencies and trauma emergencies remembering that some patients will have both medical problems the emt should be able to name the various categories of common medical emergencies and give examples. They should be able to describe the evaluation of the NOI, otherwise known as the nature of illness, and discuss the assessment of a patient with a medical emergency. The EMT should be able to explain the importance of transport time and destination selection for a medical patient. Last, the EMT should be well aware of infectious and communicable diseases, as well as the routes of transmission regarding these diseases, such as influenza, herpes, simplex, HIV AIDS, hepatitis, meningitis, tuberculosis, and the list goes on. All right, now let's start jumping into this medical overview. And don't forget, there are going to be several lectures that will be under the medical block lecture series. When people activate 911, it's either because they have a medical issue or a trauma issue. But don't forget, a patient may be suffering from both, and it's up to your assessment to determine which one takes priority over the other. Trauma emergencies involve injuries resulting from physical forces applied to the body, while medical emergencies involve illnesses and conditions caused by the disease process. Now let's talk about the types of medical emergencies that you may possibly come across during your EMT career. Respiratory emergencies occur when patients have trouble breathing or when the amount of oxygen supplied to the tissues is inadequate. Cardiovascular emergencies are caused by conditions infecting the circulatory system. Neurological emergencies involve the brain. Gastrointestinal conditions include Appendicitis, Diverticulitis, pancreatitis, and many others. A urological emergency can involve kidney stones. The most common endocrine emergencies are caused by complications of diabetes mellitus. Hemological, aka blood emergencies, m- blood emergencies, may be a result of sickle cell disease or various types of blood clotting disorders such as hemophilia. Immunological emergencies involve the body's response to foreign substances and can range from fairly minor to life-threatening. Toxicological emergencies, including poisoning and substance abuse, are a result in other types of medical emergencies. Gynecological conditions involve the female reproductive organs, and last, some medical emergencies are caused by psychological or behavioral problems. It may be especially difficult to deal with because patients often do not present with typical signs and symptoms. Alright, let's talk a little bit about the patient assessment now. Assessment of the medical patient is similar to the assessment of the trauma patient, but with a different focus. Medical patient assessment is focused on the nature of illness, NOI, symptoms, and the chief complaint we need to establish an accurate medical history. Use dispatch information to guide your initial response, but do not get locked into the preconceived idea of the patient's condition. Injuries may detract from the underlying condition. Tunnel vision occurs when you become focused on one aspect of the patient's condition and exclude all others, which may cause you to miss an important injury or illness. Assessing may be difficult when you're dealing with an uncooperative or hostile patient. You should maintain a professional, calm demeanor. You should refrain from labeling your patient or displaying any biases. Don't forget, you will be re- responding on frequent callers, but you should always treat this call no different than any other call because their chief complaint may be different and you can get caught subsequently thinking nothing's wrong with them when this time there is something. Now during scene size up, you always want to maintain your scene safety, ensure that the scene is safe, and once again use those standard precautions, your proper PPE when dealing with all patients. Now let's talk about when you determine the NOI. The index of suspicion is your awareness and concern for potentially serious underlining and in unseen injuries or illness. Essentially, you're taking in all the information that you currently have, and you're establishing an opinion of what is possibly wrong with your patient. And if you suspect that the patient needs any type of spinal immobilization, at this step, you're going to go ahead and apply that manual traction. All right, now let's talk about the actual primary assessment. As you're walking up to your patient, you want to start taking a look at them and getting that general impression. Do they look like they're critical or non-critical? We're going to perform a rapid examination to identify anything that may be possibly killing your patient now. I put it in this context because it gets you to think about, Okay, we got to find what is going to be life threatening to our patient. So that way we can correct this immediately. If there's nothing, that is good but we always want to err on the side of caution. We're going to quickly determine the patient's level of consciousness. As you're walking up to them, are they looking at you? Okay, that means they're alert. I love using the acronym AVPU, alert, verbal, painful, or unconscious. So let's go back to that. You're walking up to your patient and they're looking at you. Well, AVPU is done because we have A for alert. Now let's just say they don't have spontaneous eye-opening. Hello, sir. Hello, ma'am. And now they look at you and respond. Well, then we know they're alert to verbal, but let's say neither one of those happen. Then we walk up and we give that little bit of painful stimuli and maybe that arouses them. Well, then we know that they're alert to painful stimuli. And if none of those exist, then our patient is pretty much unconscious. And then we're going to immediately assess for the ABCs. Now on the conscious patient, All we have to ensure is that the airway is open and the patient is breathing adequately. We're going to check for the respiratory rate. We're going to check the depth, the quality. And dependent on those findings, we may consider oxygen if the patient's breathing dictates this. For the unconscious patient, we're going to utilize one of two ways to open up the airway. We're going to either utilize the head, tilt chin lift or the jaw thrust. Obviously, we're going to utilize the jaw thrust if we suspect any type of spinal injury or trauma. Once the airway is open, we're going to evaluate the breathing. What is the rate? What is the rhythm? What is the depth? At this point in time, you may determine that your patient needs oxygen. Or, you may determine that your patient needs some type of airway adjunct, such as a oropharyngeal airway or a nasal pharyngeal airway, and BVM to a system with ventilations. Once we have determined that the airway has been established and it is open, we can move further. Now, I caution you when you see test questions, test questions like to confuse you. Remember, no life can exist without an airway. So, the airway is always the first answer when we ask you. What you, should you do in this scenario? It is always A for airway. Once we have established that the airway is a good airway, then we can move to B for breathing. Once we establish that breathing is okay, then we can move to C for circulation. Now, if you have a test question that, does have, that doesn't have an answer in regards to A, B, or C, then we can assume it has some type of treatment as your answer. But i call this the chris conno algorithm and the reason why is because i have found that test questions will ask you what do you do in this scenario and students get confused but they should always err on the side of looking for the answer that deals with airway and if there is no answer with airway then move to b for breathing If there is no answer for B for breathing, then move to C for circulation. And if there is nothing for C, then it has to be some other type of treatment. If you look at all your test questions this way, you should be getting your test questions right. Now, once we've established that we have an airway and we're taking care of the patient's breathing, either because they have adequate breathing or we're breathing for them, we're then gonna move to circulation. We're gonna assess circulation by The conscious patient utilizing the radial pulse. We're also at this time going to take note of the patient's skin signs. Are they pale, cool, diaphoretic? Because if they are, then we know they're shocky. And then, then, I should say, let's revert back. If our patient is unconscious, then if the patient is a large child or adult, we're going to check the carotid pulse. Obviously, in an infant, it would be the brachial artery. Once we've established this, we have enough information to make a transport decision. I always talk about, and I actually got this from one of my skills instructors named Joe, you should be thinking of the song from The Clash, Should I Stay or Should I Go? At this point in time, you got to say to yourself, is my patient critical enough that I have to scoop and run and get going to the hospital, or do I have time to go ahead and further assess them and possibly provide some medical treatment because they're not as critical. This is not a rule of thumb, but it might just give you a little bit more perspective of which patients you should consider consider having a serious condition and in need of rapid transport. These would be patients who are an unconscious or who have an altered mental status, patients with an airway or breathing problem, patients with obvious circulation problems such as severe bleeding or signs of shock, If your patient doesn't present with any of the three findings, then continue your assessment and prepare to transport your patient based upon the next phases of your patient assessment. Let's talk a little bit about history taking now. As you start thinking about the patient's history, you should determine what the patient's problem is or what may be causing the problem. This will be gathered through a thorough history investigate the noi by inquiring about the chief complaint for the unconscious patient survey the scene for medications containers or medical devices as you continue to gather information remember to attain a sample history and to ask questions about the chief's complaint utilizing opqrst record the patient's allergies medical conditions and any medications the patient may take some patients take numerous medications gather up all those medications so you can take them to the hospital with you the mnemonic tacos can be helpful in identifying conditions that may be complicating a patient's chief complaint or affecting medications now once we have done this history taken we're going to move on over to the secondary assessment One of the things I want you to remember about the secondary assessment is that you, the EMT, can do the secondary assessment while on scene or en route to the emergency room. There are actually going to be some emergencies where you will not have enough time to complete a secondary assessment. Now, when we're doing the physical exam, all patients should undergo, I should say, let me back that up. All conscious patients should undergo a limited or detailed physical exam based upon their chief complaint. The reason why I put it in this perspective is quite simply, your patient is able to tell you what is bothering them. So that way we're going to focus on a detailed physical exam. For the unconscious patient, you should always perform a secondary assessment of the entire body conducting a head-to-toe examination to obtain any clues on what the problem may be. A full body assessment should help you to obtain clues and should be performed quickly so it does not delay transport. If the patient's condition warrants a secondary assessment, examine the head, scalp, face, then examine the neck closely, assess the chest and abdomen, palpate the legs and arms, and examine the patient's neck. Treatment will depend on the conditions found and as well as your local protocols. Once a secondary assessment has been completed, we're going to move on into vital signs. Assess the pulse for rate, quality, and regularity at the most appropriate site. That could be the radio or the carotid. Identify the rate, quality, and regularity of the respirations and any difficulties that the patient may have. Obtain initial blood pressure, measuring both systolic and diastolic pressures. Consider using an automatic blood pressure cuff for future assessments at regular intervals. Remember for your critical patient, that is every five minutes and for your non-critical patient every 15 minutes. And consider, if you're able to, of obtaining a blood glucose level and a pulse ox reading. And then once again, as I have already said, we're gonna conduct our reassessment based upon your patient being non-critical or critical. And if your patient warranted, you should ensure that ALS, aka paramedics, are in route. Once we've done all of this, you should be documenting all of your assessment, your treatment, findings, reassessments on your particular documentation form. Now that your assessment has been completed, you must now determine if you're going to transport your patient and the destination that you will be going to. There are just some medical emergencies that require a level of treatment beyond the available pre-hospital setting. It also may be beyond the scope of the EMT to administer medications to the patient. Once again, check your local protocols. Any administration of medication by an EMT requires direct permission from medical control. However, some medical controls have established standby orders or offline orders for the EMT. Once again, don't forget as well that some EMTs, or I should say some places where you work, may possibly provide you with an AED. So, if you do have a patient that is pulseless and apneic, make sure you break out that AED. Now, in regards to scene time, there are just some scenes that may take longer for medical patients than trauma patients because we have that golden hour in trauma. Gather as much information as possible to give to the emergency room. Critical patients always need ran- rapid transport. And once again, those patients include patients with an altered mental status, patients with airway or breathing difficulties, patients with any signs of circulatory compromise, and patients who are very old or very young. Now, not everybody will be transported via ground ambulance. There are various different ways that we can transport our patient. If a life-threatening condition exists, the transportation should include lights and siren. If the patient is non-critical, consider non-emergency transport. Now modes of transport ultimately come in two categories, ground or air. Ground transport EMS units are generally staffed by EMTs and paramedics. Air transport EMS units are generally staffed by critical care transport professionals and paramedics. All right, last, destination selection. Generally for the EMT, the closest hospital will be your destination. However, there are those patients that may request a particular hospital They may request a hospital based upon their insurance or based upon their medical condition, they may require a specialty center, such as a STEMI center or a stroke center. That is it for patient assessment and transport. We're now gonna shift gears and talk about infectious diseases. Now, we approach the patient with an infectious disease like any other medical patient. We're gonna perform the scene size up take standard precautions, and complete a primary assessment. We're going to gather patient history utilizing OPQRST to elaborate on the patient's chief complaint. We're going to attain a sample history and a set of baseline vital signs, paying particularly attention to medications and the events leading up to today's problem. We're going to ask the patient whether they have recently traveled or have come in contact with someone who has traveled especially today with you, the various different pandemic and viral diseases that we are seeing. Now there are some general management principles. We focus on any life-threatening conditions identified in the primary assessment. Of course, be empathetic. Place the patient in a position of comfort on the stretcher and keep them warm. Always, always, always utilize standard precaution. Always follow your agency's exposure control plan in cleaning equipment, properly discarding and disposing supplies, and wash linens. Now today we live in a world where we have to have epidemic and pandemic considerations. Don't forget an epidemic is when new cases of disease in a human population substantially exceed what is expected. A pandemic is a disease outbreak that occurs on a global scale. We're now going to talk about and identify some common or serious clinical diseases. With all this talk of COVID, we forgot one of the most basic diseases that is out there, and that is influenza. Those with chronic medical conditions, compromised immune systems, and the very young and very old are the most susceptible to complications of influenza. Influenza is transmitted by direct contact with nasal secretions and aerolized droplets from coughing and sneezing by affected people. For diseases that can be passed by the respiratory route, you should always wear your PPE, which should include gloves, eye protection, and a HEPA respirator. You should always wash your hands frequently, place a surgical mask on patients with suspected or confirmed respiratory disease, Wear your HEPA respirator during aerosol-generating procedures, such as suctioning. And you should consider getting your annual influenza immunization. Alright, let's now talk about herpes simplex. This is a common virus strain carried by humans. It's a sympathetic infection that causes eruptions of tiny fluid-filled blisters called vesicles that appear on the lips or genitals. They can cause serious illness like pneumonia and meningitis in the very young, very old, and the immune compromised. The primary mode of infection is through close personal contact, so standard precautions are generally sufficient to prevent spread to and from healthcare workers. Moving on to HIV infection, EMTs face a risk of exposure to this virus which causes AIDS on a regular basis. AIDS can still be fatal. However, with treatment, patients can expect a near normal lifespan. HIV infection is a potential hazard only when deposited on mucous membranes or directly into the bloodstream. It is not easily transmitted in the work setting. Your risk of infection is limited to exposure to the infected patient's blood and body fluids. Many patients with human a human immune deficiency virus, HIV, show no symptoms. Always wear the proper type of gloves. Take great care in handling or properly disposing of needles and other sharp objects. Cover any open wounds that you have whether you are on the job. If you think that a patient's blood or secretions may have entered your system, seek medical advice as soon as possible and notify your infectious disease officer. This next disease is probably the one that you have a better chance of contracting, and it's hepatitis. Remember, hepatitis is an inflammation or infection of the liver. Now there's a toxin-induced hepatitis, but this is not contagious. There's no way to tell which hepatitis a patient has that is either contagious or not contagious, so we wanna take standard precautions regardless. Hepatitis A can be transmitted only from a patient who has an acute infection, whereas Hepatitis B and Hepatitis C can be transmitted from long-term carriers who have no signs of illness. A carrier is a person, or animal, in whom an infectious organism has taken up permanent residence and may or may not cause an active disease. Hepatitis A is transmitted orally through oral and fecal contamination, Hepatitis B is far more contagious than HIV. Hepatitis B vaccine is highly recommended for all EMTs. Meningitis. Meningitis is an inflammation of the meningeal coverings of the brain and spinal cord. Most forms of meningitis are not contagious. However, one form, meningococcal meningitis, is highly contagious. Take your standard precautions. Gloves and a mask will go a long way to prevent the patient's secretions from getting into your nose and mouth. Vaccines are rarely used in this disease. Meningitis can be treated in the emergency room with antibiotics. After treating a patient with meningitis, contact your employer's healthcare representative because they may have some further testing or documentation they may want to do. Alright, let's talk about that little disease that killed Doc Holliday, tuberculosis. Tuberculosis. Many infected patients are well most of the time. It's a chronic mycobacterial disease that usually strikes the lungs. Once this disease attacks the lungs, it becomes tuberculosis. Now there's a reactive tuberculosis, and this is common, and it can be much more difficult to treat. Patients who pose the highest risk almost always have a cough. Consider respiratory tuberculosis to be the only contagious forms because it is the only one that is spread by airborne transmission. The airborne transmission, let's think about it, or let's call it, droplet nuclei. This is a remnant of a droplet that's produced by caffeine after the excessive water has evaporated. The best protection is an N95 or HEPA mask against these droplet nuclei. Absolute protection from infection with the tuberculin bacillus does not exist. According to the Center for Disease Control and Prevention, one-third of the world's population is infected with tuberculosis. The mechanism of transmission is not very efficient. In other words, it's not spread as rampant as other diseases. You should have a regular tuberculin skin test, most employers require one a year. If the infection is found before you become ill, preventative therapy is almost 100% effective. Moving on over to whooping cough, this is also called pertussis. Whooping cough is an airborne disease caused by bacteria that mostly affects children younger than 6 years. The best way to prevent exposure is to be vaccinated with a DPT or TDAP vaccine. You can also place a mask on your patient and yourself for protection. Now, let's talk a little bit about MRSA. MRSA is a bacterium that causes infection. It It is resistant to many antibiotics. In the healthcare setting, MRSA is transmitted from patient to patient by the unwashed hands of the healthcare provider. Factors that increase the risk for developing MRSA include antibiotic therapy, prolonged hospital stays, a stay in an intensive care or burn unit, and exposure to an infective patient. The incubation period for a MRSA appears to be between 5 and 45 days. MRSA is a result, or I should say MRSA results in soft tissue infections. As we begin to wind down this lecture, we're gonna talk about global health issues as well as travel medicine. Remember, there may be testable content on the National Registry exam and thus you need to know this information. All right, we're gonna talk a little bit about MERS-CoV. MERS stands for Middle East Respiratory Syndrome Coronavirus. The first human case of MERS Was discovered in Saudi Arabia in 2012. Most human infections were found in the Mideast. Cases of MERS have been found in Europe and the United States. If you suspect MERS, place a surgical mask on the patient and notify the receiving facility. Now you may have heard back a few years ago about Ebola. In 2014, an outbreak of Ebola virus hit West Africa, which spread spread when infected people travel to other countries, caused international concern. The incubation period of Ebola is 6 to 12 days after exposure. Symptoms may not appear for as long as 21 days after infection. The fatality rate can be as high as 70% If treatment in the ICU is not initiated promptly. If you suspect Ebola, place a surgical mask on the patient, follow PPE precautions as outlined by local protocols and the CDC, and notify the receiving facility. Alright, now we're gonna end off with travel medicine. You must be aware of travel-acquired infections when assessing a patient who who was recently outside of the United States. Patients can present with a variety of symptoms including fever, cough, vomiting, bloody diarrhea, body aches, and rashes. When you encounter an ill patient with a recent travel history, place a mask on the patient and gather as much information as possible. Important questions to ask the patient should include, Where did you recently travel? Did you receive any vaccinations before your trip? Were you exposed to any infectious diseases? Is there anyone else in your travel party who is sick? What type of foods did you eat? What was your source of drinking water? If you suspect that the patient has a communicable illness, follow appropriate PPE precautions and notify the receiving facility. The assessment and treatment of medical patients can be challenging and interesting because of the nature of medical conditions. The condition of a medical patient may not be as apparent as in a trauma patient and treatment may not be as straightforward. Delays in an attempt to diagnose a condition can be harmful to the patient. Keep calm, use your patient assessment skills, treat the patient's symptoms, report to medical control, and transport the the patient safely to the emergency room. Be prepared to handle any combination of conditions, including conditions of medical patients who have been involved in trauma. Well, that's it, ladies and gentlemen. That's it for our lecture on medical overview. Don't forget, there will be many additional lectures under the medical block tab. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for all your support. Please share this podcast with the other students in your course, and if you're up to it, You can subscribe to this podcast utilizing your podcast app, which provides you exclusive content that we've already spoke about before. You can also head on over to our Patreon channel and look for the EMT Tutor and support us that way, and you'll find exclusive content right there at the Patreon channel. And leave whatever feedback you can inside of your podcast apps because it definitely helps people through the algorithm find this podcast. Okay ladies and gentlemen, that is it for me, the pu- Chris, the public safety guru. Happy learning and happy EMT, good luck.